The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Let me read to you the text we're going to look at. If you'll turn to Philippians chapter 1, we're right at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, beginning in verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1. It's right after Ephesians, if you don't know where it's at. And this is what Paul writes to them. Only, that is, make this your one priority. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in the one spirit with one mind and striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is a, a wonderful passage. Uh, we're, we are going to be uh, baptizing uh, three people this, today at three. Hope you come over to the Petersons for this. Uh, the reason we're having it at the Petersons is uh, their eldest child who's 11 now, is being baptized, Noelle. If you've ever talked to Noelle, you know that she's kind of an amazing person. She's very articulate for an 11-year-old. And so I had her write out her testimony, and I asked her for permission to read to you one paragraph out of it. This is really what this text is about. It's about the effect of us being one, of us being a unity of us loving one another. This is what she said after she talked about growing up. She never had a time in her life when she didn't believe that Jesus had died for her sins. But then she said there's a difference between knowing something and understanding it. And she came to understand the gospel at a certain point and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then she says a little later, when I was a little older, (laughs) I can still remember that we were singing in church. And I looked around and suddenly something clicked in my brain. I had always, it, it had always been there, I just didn't realize it. There was something about how the whole church sang as one. Something strong about it. We were all there for the same reason. We were all sinners and yet we could come together and worship because Jesus died on the cross for us. <laughs> That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Uh, Her dad wanted me to interview her today because he thought he would break down. And I said, well, get ready because I've never talked to her when I haven't gotten broken up emotionally because she has such a sweet testimony. 
and it's such a wonderful thing that she wants to be baptized. And we're baptizing a couple other similar amazing people that have come to faith in Christ and God has worked in their lives. And so we're going to fellowship. Today, we're having communion, which is one ordinance that Jesus left us. He left us an ordinance of communion and baptism. Baptism is the picture of a person coming into the fellowship of the saints through the new birth. We are baptized into Christ. We became one with Christ. He came one he became one with us. His life is in us now. And so water baptism is a picture of that conversion. It's a picture of the new birth of becoming one with Christ. And the Lord's table is a picture of our ongoing life and fellowship with Jesus Christ. And so we break bread and we drink of one cup. We actually drink of a whole bunch of cups because people are afraid of germs. But uh, what Jesus did, he took a cup and passed it around. And everybody drank from it. And uh, we do that because it's a reminder that we have an ongoing relationship with Christ. This one who became one of us, took on our nature. He lived the life we should have lived and didn't. And he dies the death that we deserve to die. And yet he took our place and died under the judgment of God. And so we have been given these ordinances so that would remind us time and time and time again of who we are in Christ Jesus. I was so moved by that testimony, though, that an 11-year-old got it, that when we sing, we sing together because we have oneness of heart and mind. We praise the same Lord Jesus Christ. We worship him because we are one in Christ. And so what I want to do this morning is to take a look at this passage I just read, Philippians 1, 27 through 2, 4. The main idea here is really simple. It's that Paul exhorts the Philippians to live worthy of the gospel by standing together against opposition and by serving one another in humble compassion for each other. This is a place, a local church is a place that you can come and be a part of a community of faith. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you actually become a family member. And people begin to love you and minister to you and serve you as a part of life in the church of Jesus Christ. And that's all a part of walking worthy of the gospel. I wanted to show you something. The word worthy is actually, it sounds like this, oxios. It sounds like axle. And uh, what it means is the bringing up of the beam so that things on both sides of the scale are the same. That's what worthy is. So if, if... If God were to weigh our life as a local church, it should be of equal weight and value as as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? You can imagine a scale like that, an ancient scale like that, and somebody says, I've got 10 ounces of gold. So they put the gold on there, and then they take a, a weight of 10 ounces and put it on there. If the scale goes like this, and that the weight that they put is much heavier than the gold, they realize that the gold does not weigh 10 ounces or whatever I said. (laughs) And so this is a picture of our living a life together as a community. The emphasis in this text is all about us as a group, not about individual, us individually. You know, most of you have read the King James Bible, and the King James Bible does something that, because the language has changed, is no longer done, and that is When the King James Bible, in your King James Bible, if you have one, and it says you, it's talking about plural you, always. That's how King James English worked. If if it's a you singular, it would be thee or thou. 
But we don't do that anymore. And so sometimes in the New Testament, when you read it, you don't get it that he's talking to us as a group and not individually. And that's what this text is about. It's about us as a local church living our life as a local church in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And, and when I read that, what Noel wrote, that's exactly what Paul is getting at. Are we functioning as the body of Christ in a way that is worthy of the gospel? And that's what we desire to do. Well, how do we live worthy of the gospel? Um, and I would like to show you a couple of things. It's, I think it's in your little handout. The first thing is, um, he says, be united in one priority. There's one thing that we have to be absolutely sold on and convinced of as a local church, and that is that we want to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that is foreign language to you, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that God has given us in his word about what he's done in order to save us, and in fact, to save his whole creation. And that is, he sent his son into the world, the eternal son of God, who comes into the world and becomes a human being like us. He takes on a real human nature like ours. You know the story, the nativity story. You know about Jesus being born in Nazareth, which was prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before that in the Old Testament, where he would be born and the circumstances under which he would be born. He was the fulfillment of a promise of God that began in Genesis 3.15, when God tells Satan that his He's going to send one who is going to be a seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, Eve. That is, he's going to be a real human being. And yet, he is going to deliver us from our sin. And so we have salvation because Christ has provided it as a gift to us. We didn't earn it. We could never earn it. We don't deserve it, and we're all aware of that. But it's been given to us as a gift, and you have to receive it as a gift. You can't work for it. You have to receive it as a gift from God because he has purchased it for us through his son. And so Paul says, the first thing I want you to know in walking worthy of the gospel is you have to have one priority. And that priority is that our life together, our life as a community of faith in the way we treat each other, in the way that we live the Christian life, in the way that we worship together, has to be worthy of the gospel. So what we want is that everything we do together as the people of God, we want it to be of such a nature that it, is, it reflects the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we don't want to just be religious, in other words. We want to live lives of faith in Christ and unity together. The next thing he says is that he says that you must stand together against the opposition to the gospel. Now, most of us have never experienced a whole lot of opposition to the gospel personally, but there are people in the world today who are suffering horrendously because of the gospel that they believe and that they preach. And that's been true throughout church history. And so he says you have to stand against this opposition to the gospel, and here's what it means. We have to stand as a team. You see that expression, in no way alarmed by the opponents? We have, to, we have to stand for the gospel with fearlessness and with purpose. We want everybody we know to come to understand this gospel truth and to embrace it by faith and come to experience what it's like to have a relationship with God through Christ. 
because this is the message of the Bible. It's the message of the gospel that the incarnate son, the, that the eternal son of God became the incarnate son of God. He came into this world and took on our flesh so that we could become the adopted sons of God so that we could enter into this family and be a part of the family of God. And so he says that we, first of all, we are to, uh, we are to live our lives as a team with one mind striving together. Let me, let me give you the Greek word for striving together. It's soon athleo. You, you hear that athleo, athlete? It's like a team. If you've ever been on a, a team of some kind, a basketball team, football team, baseball team, you know that what has to happen is you have to be together. You have to have one mind. You have to be sold on each other. You have to be committed to one another. That's what the church has to be in order to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We have to strive together as one against the opposition of the gospel. And then, secondly, he says you have to do it with purpose and fearlessness and no way alarmed by your opponents just because you get some opposition. Some of us are so afraid to share the gospel with anybody because we're, we're afraid they're going to insult us in some way, <laughs> which means nothing. It's okay for you to believe the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You don't have to be ashamed of it. You don't have to be afraid to communicate it. It's the truth. And the amazing thing is that almost 3 billion people in the world today believe that that's true by their confession. And then we have to uh, understand that when we have opponents that, uh, that oppose the gospel, that that is a sign. Notice what he says. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that, too, from God. In 2 Thessalonians 1.6, it says that this is what we will experience. We will experience opposition to the gospel. We will stand firm in it. That's a part of salvation. It's a part of what God does to us on the inside. We have this conviction about the truth of the gospel. And then we have to value the suffering of Christ. Stand against the opposition to the gospel. We stand together as a team. In other words, uh, you know, sometimes young people get into a college situation, and I've heard these stories where they get confronted by a, a, a teacher who wants to make fun of them and, and show how foolish they are for believing the gospel, believing in Christ, believing the Bible. Well, we do. We're a family, aren't we? And we have one mind and one heart. And so we work together. We pray for each other. Uh, your, uh, we have a little, um, it's uh, downloadable off of the membership site that you can get a directory of all the people in this, in this local church. It's a part of this local church. And you can actually go through that. That's what I suggest you do, that every single day you pray for a family or two in that directory. That you pray for them. You know what's going to happen? You're going to start getting to know them better. And you're going to start finding out what you can pray for. And what their needs really are. And then the, the, the last thing he mentions in this little section is we should value suffering for Christ. That sounds odd, doesn't it? Listen to what he, how he puts it. He says, for to you it has been granted. That means graced. It's been freely given to you for Christ's sake. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And then he says in verse 30, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. It's a special privilege, Paul says. Now, the reason this has such credibility is 
Paul was in prison suffering for the gospel. And he says, when you suffer for the gospel, it's a gift. It's been grace to you from God. That's, that's the kind of gift. I remember when I was, I think I was 14 years old, and one of our Christmas family Christmas get-togethers, they, they had shared names. Everybody chose a name. And so somebody got me a gift, and it was probably for a six-year-old. And I remember how insulted I was that they didn't realize I was a grown-up 14-year-old. And um, sometimes uh, that happens. But what he's telling us here is God's given us a gift. He's graced us a gift, and that is to suffer for Christ. Not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him. And Paul goes on to say, just as you know what kind of suffering I've been going through, the same kind of conflict. What was the conflict? The conflict was this. Paul was a Roman citizen. And he's writing to a city that is a part of a, is a Roman colony. Everybody in the city of Philippi was a Roman citizen. And guess what? Every Roman citizen had to call the Caesar Lord and Savior. That was an obligation they had for them to acknowledge that he was Lord and Savior. And Paul didn't acknowledge that. That's why he was in prison. He called one person Lord and Savior, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was nobody else that he would call Lord and Savior. And he's saying, now you're experiencing the same conflict that I'm, I've been experiencing. They have begun to experience this because they were obligated as citizens of Philippi to confess that Caesar was Lord and Savior. But they came to know something better. In Peter, in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, it says that when you suffer for the name of Christ, when you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And here's how you're blessed. The spirit of God and of glory rests upon you. You know, it almost sounds like that God actually pays attention to our lives, doesn't it? It actually sounds like he actually knows what's going on in our lives when we suffer for Christ. And he says that we are blessed. Paul says we are blessed. And Peter says we are greatly blessed. The Spirit of God and of glory rests upon us. You know, people are always wanting to have an experience of the Holy Spirit. They want the Holy Spirit to come upon them in power. Well, here's how to do it. Suffer for the name of Christ. When you're insulted for Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of God and of glory rests upon you. He comes upon those who go through this. You know, we hear these reports all the time about Christians going through severe trials and troubles. And we can't figure out why aren't they sad? Why aren't they nervous? Why aren't they full of anxiety like the rest of us are about them? Why do they have confidence? It's because they're blessed and the Spirit of God and of glory is resting upon them. And he is, he is allowing them to see the truth that this is a great privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. It's a huge privilege now, all of us have suffered for the wrong things. You know, we've done stuff. I remember got in trouble one time at home because uh, I was going to school in Clovis, but we, my family lived up here, and so we had a basketball game over in uh, San Francisco. So a bunch of us, and I drove, and I had a car full of kids, and we drove over the city, and we stayed out until about 1 o'clock in the morning. And in fact, I got, I kind of got in trouble. I got a ticket and, uh, and then the battery on this car I was driving went bad and I was stuck and I had to call home and get some help. 
And so I, I got read, I really got confronted over this. I got in big trouble. But it wasn't because I was suffering for Christ. It was because I was suffering for my stupidity. <laughs> so don't think when you suffer for your own stupidity that you're being blessed. <laughs> but when you are reviled for the name of Christ, you can rest assured the Spirit of God and of glory is resting upon you. God is allowing you to experience something glorious. And this is what Paul says is a part of a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the third thing he does, he tells us down in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, be united in humble service to and with one another. Serve one another and serve with one another. Shoulder to shoulder. And the, the motivation for this, notice this, is fourfold. He mentions four things. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation, so encouragement, consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Now, this is based upon a passage that I almost read to you a while ago in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the last verse in 2 Corinthians, Paul gives a blessing to them to the Corinthians, and this is what he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's a Trinitarian blessing. May you be blessed with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit. Well, Paul takes that and he adds one thing. He says that we, we have this, if there is any, in other words, there certainly is. There certainly is um, Grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is love in your relationship to God. God loves in a way that nobody else can. And there is fellowship in the Holy Spirit. But then he adds something. If there's any affection and compassion, that's the body of Christ. That's what we receive by being a part of the body of Christ, actively engaged with fellow believers who are standing for the gospel, walking worthy of the gospel. And so he says the basis of our unity are these four things. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the encouragement we receive from that, the consolation of God's love for us, the fellowship of the Spirit, and the affection and compassion that we receive in the body of Christ. It's amazing, isn't it, how people can love you in the body of Christ, how they can have compassion on you and affection for you. Now, there's a, there's a motive that Paul reveals to us that he says that he wants their unity. He wants them to have unity. You understand what unity is. Unity is when we're really together. We have the same mindset. We, we look at things the same way. See, the common way for Christians to look at reality is we look through the lens of the cross. Every person I ever meet, I want to look at them through the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I don't look at anything without that. Everything in 2 Corinthians, he says, I look at everything through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what Christ has done for us. And so he says, this is my motive. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, which means the same mindset. You know what a mindset is? It's like a worldview. It's the way we look at things. This is how I value things. This is the way I look at things. 
And he says, I want you all to have the same mindset. You're looking through the lens of the cross. And that's what should make every pastor completely joyful. He says, this brings me profound joy. When you live with a single mindset, the mindset of Jesus Christ, the mindset of the cross. A little later in this same book, we're going to get to that next time, is the mindset that Jesus had. And, and Paul says, I want you all to have the same mindset. It was a mindset of humility. He said that Jesus didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God. What he meant by that, this wasn't something he had to grab and hang on to so that he could get benefit from it. But he literally takes on the form of a servant by becoming a human being and comes to serve us. And Jesus says in, in Mark ten forty five, even the Son of Man, that is the one who's been given rule over all the creation, even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This is, this is the glory of this calling that we have been given. And so Paul says, this gives me great joy when you have the same mindset, when you see things the way Jesus Christ seen. You know, when you, you find these places in the New Testament where Jesus encounters people and the way he speaks to them, the way he looks at them, it's kind of stunning to us. Uh, in fact, at times it's just, it's, it's really overwhelming. And, and I'd like you to look at one of those, and that's in Mark 10. This is the story of the rich young ruler. You've heard of that? The story of the rich young ruler. It's, it's a story that Jesus, t- it's a story. It's a true story. It really happened, but it's something that happened to Jesus. And notice how he responds to this man. This, this young man comes to Jesus and he wants to know what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And this is how, this is where we, we find it in Mark chapter 10, verse 21. This is a Bible drill. Uh, Mark 10, 21. Looking at him, this, this teacher comes to Jesus, uh, this, this man, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, uh, what must I do in inherit eternal life? And so Jesus says, well, what do the commandments say? And he quotes them all. And then the man says, I've been doing that since I was a, just a youth. I've always kept the law. Don't ever say that. Because it's not true. Sometimes people think, I, I've, I've kept the Ten Commandments, so Really? So you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself? There's enough evidence in my life for people who've watched me live to know that I have broken God's commandments at times. And so Jesus, this is what happens. So listen to this. It says, uh, he tells him this, and he says, hey, I've, I've kept those since a youth. And this is what Jesus says to him. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. This man's not going to believe. He's not, he's not one of those who belong to Jesus. He's not going to put his faith in Jesus. And yet it says, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack. He's reading his heart. This is the eternal son of God. And he's able to read this man's heart in the power of the spirit. And he says, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. You think... Wow, that doesn't sound like the gospel. Is that the gospel I'm supposed to give everything I have away? No. But Jesus read his heart. And here's what was going on in his heart. His heart was set upon his own possessions. He replaced God with his possessions. It's what he valued above everything else. And so Jesus says, here's the roadblock. And here's how you deal with it. 
Go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. And then you'll end up inheriting eternal life. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. He's grieving because he owns so much and he just cannot give it up. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And they they began to ask, well, wait a minute, how can that be? Wow, that must make it impossible. Whatever you're loving in the place of God, that's your idol, if if that's what's going on in your heart. If you, are, if you need something more than God, that's your idol. And that was his idol. But what I wanted you to notice was Jesus loved this man. And he was actually sad that he didn't see what he needed to see and believe what he needed to believe. And then notice his unity, how unity is to be manifested in the middle of verse 2. Down through verse 4, he says, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You as a group. He's not just talking about one person. He's talking about us as a group. That you be maintaining the same love for one another and for others, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interests of others. So then we need to ask the question, what would a church look like that's living together in this manner that's worthy of the gospel? What would we look like? I jotted down a few things I wanted to show you, and here's what they are. First of all, we would be a church that's friendly, and here's why. Because we know that Jesus loves people. Jesus actually loves people. In fact, he loved people that didn't receive him. He loved people that were sinners by everybody's measure. If you remember, he had people come to him, and the Pharisees were greatly affronted by it because he showed compassion on people. And so a church that's living in a manner worthy of the gospel is going to be a friendly church. By that I mean they're going to love people. And when people come into our midst, they're going to be able to tell that. They'll be able to recognize it. Secondly, we'll be an outward-looking church. That is understanding, because we understand we've been sent into the world. And as someone has said and written, if we love the world the way God loves the world, we would not love the, wor- way, the world the way we are told not to love the world. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. First John, in, in 1 John chapter 2, John says, stop loving the world. Do not love the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not of God. But if we loved the world the way, the way the Father loves the world, then we wouldn't love the world in that way. And so we would be an outward-looking church. We would be looking for ways that we could serve people in this world in the name of Christ. Third, we would be missional, which just means we understand we're on mission. You all understand you're on mission, don't you, as believers? That he sent us into the world to make disciples of all the nations. And so we have standing orders. It's constantly there. And so we, are, we would be a missional church. That is, we would be living with this understanding that we are on mission from God. And then we would be courageous. That is, we are free 
to respond to the Spirit in making Jesus known anywhere under any circumstances. And since that true, if that's true, then we should do it. We should be a church that shares Christ. That is, we should be a people who shares Christ. And then generous, because we've come to understand that God has given us resources so we can help others. That's why he's given us resources. What I mean by that, he's given you more than you need so that you could give them, so you could help others when they're in need. And then finally, we would be worshipful because we understand that's our primary purpose for existence is to worship God. As we've said, we come together on Sunday mornings in order to learn how to love God supremely. We want to sing songs that lift him up. We want to pray together. We want to worship together so that we're encouraging each other in doing this. That's why I was so affected by what Noel wrote. That she actually caught it. That is a small local church. We're singing praises to God. And all of a sudden she realized we were all singing the same song. And we were all believing the same gospel. That's a wonderful thing. That's the value of the church. The value of the church isn't that you have 52 different ministries that take care of, takes care of every need in your life. It's that we would be a worshiping community and that we would encourage each other in being that kind of a people. You could put it another way. You could say we should be loving and worshiping Jesus and loving, serving, and making disciples. Or if we went back to uh, Acts 2, verse 42 through 47, which we looked at some time back, Five priorities there that the church did as we see them in action. They worshiped, they prayed, they evangelized, they learned, and they loved each other, and they loved people. So that's what we want to do. We want to be a church that lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the gospel. That we could, people could see in us in the way that we relate to each other. They could see the truth of the gospel. So that when they heard us talk about the gospel, that God as a gift has offered us salvation in Christ Jesus, it would make sense that that's exactly what we believe. Because that's how we are living. So this is what he's called us to do, is to live like that. Today, when we baptize uh, these three young people, um, we, what we are doing is we are uh, celebrating the fact that this is a community of the gospel, and therefore the gospel saves, and it brings people into the body of Christ and makes them recipients of eternal life and members of the body of Christ. And so what God says is if you've received this by faith, then live a life that reflects that. Not just individually, but together. Now this causes us a problem sometimes because we actually have to learn to love each other. You know what I mean? We have to learn to love each other. And guess what? None of us have yet been completely conformed to the image of Christ. And so we've got weaknesses of all kinds. Uh, But the the way that we can influence each other is by living the gospel and living a life that that is worthy of the gospel. So that's what I want to see happen 
in our church. We're going we're gonna to take communion now in just a second. The men are going to come up and uh, pass out the, the communion elements, the cups and the, and the loaf, the bread. <clears throat> Before you partake, I'm going to come up after they finish handing everything out. I think we're going to sing as they do that. And, uh, and then I will pray over the elements and we'll partake together. Let me explain what this means. This is something that believers do because they have rested their faith in Christ. And therefore, they are living a life of fellowship with the living God. They're actually experiencing what life in fellowship with God is actually like. And so this communion table, this breaking of bread, is to manifest that and to remind us of that reality that the one we fellowship with is the one who gave his life for us. He laid down his life for us. So let me pray, and the guys are going to come and play some music, and the guys will come up and pass out the elements, and then we'll partake together as I, after I come up and pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God. I'm so grateful that the Word of God confronts me. It, uh, it hits me right between the eyes. It shows me exactly what I need to be and how dependent I, I am upon you, Father. And it does that for us as a community. And I just pray that we would be a people that have one mind and one spirit and that we serve you and walk with Christ in that manner. We want to live worthy of the gospel. We want to live in such a way that the gospel, the good news being proclaimed would make perfect sense as people have watched you work in us and through us. And so we pray that your hand would be upon us now as we come to the Lord's table. I pray that our hearts would be right with you. Father, that we would uh, receive this as a gift from you just as we receive Christ. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.